Today's episode is our last episode in our mental health series. I hope you guys have enjoyed it. Uh, it's been really, really awesome to work on. I've learned a ton, um, and I hope it's been beneficial to you. We're going to take a break for a couple weeks after this episode to help us plan for future episodes, and we'll be back soon with new content. Thanks again for listening. Hey friends, I'm Elizabeth Woodson, and I'm here with my co-host Adam Hawkins, and we're joined again by a special guest, Greg Wilson. Today we are going to end our series on mental health, and we're going to talk about how the church can be a leader in handling this issue in our culture with faithfulness and care. Greg, it is great to have you back on the podcast again today. Glad to be back. Yay! And we want to talk specifically about your new book. Yeah, Can thanks. we just have love for writing a book and the process? <laughs> you and I were talking about it offline. Yeah. It is not easy. Oh, man. <laughs> so. I'm so glad it's done. <laughs> Kudos to you. It's a pain I can't share, but from a distance, I'm very proud of you guys. Well, for thank, going you, that. Yeah. thank you, Adam. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. And so can you just share and what's your book about and how does it connect maybe with a broader conversation about mm. mental health? Sure. So the book is called When Home Hurts, A Guide for Responding Wisely to Domestic Abuse in Your Church. And um, uh a little bit of the history of like how the book came about is um, as we referenced in the last um, uh, time we were together, uh, I've, I've been involved with my church in terms of care for a while, uh, also as a professional counselor, uh, Christian counselor in the community. I've also been involved in other churches' uh, care because I've been involved in seeing some of their people who have either been cared for well or maybe not so well. And so I had this burden, I guess, is is the way that we typically put it in our Christian circles, uh, for uh, the way that the church cares in this area and for the mistakes that we make and the things that we could do better in this area. And I was going to be pursuing a doctorate um, anyway, and so I talked to the guy who was going to be my supervisor, a guy named Jeremy Pierre, who's my co-author on this book, and um and I told him that's what I wanted to write on for my dissertation. It's what I wanted to focus on. And he immediately said, oh, this I'm so glad to hear that because there is a publisher that has been pursuing me to write a, a book on this topic, um, but I had not wanted to write that book alone. I had wanted to write that book with someone who had banked some counseling hours uh, in this area um, and had banked some experience, maybe in a little bit different way than his experience, which was mostly pastoral and then as a seminary professor. And so so that's what we did. So I did my doctorate. He was my supervisor. And then coming out of that, uh, we did, did the process of turning what was my dissertation, which was a little bit more academic into something that was a little bit more accessible for churches. And so our hope for the book is that church leaders, friends, uh, pastors, elders, uh, family members of someone who is walking through domestic abuse would be able to care for them in ways that are that are wise and helpful, actually helpful. And it's so good that we talked about trauma in the, la the last time that we were together, because I jokingly told some people I was actually doing a training uh, this past week on uh, domestic abuse in the church and how the church responds. And I told some people, you know, if there was anything I could do differently about this book, I would probably have just started with the topic of trauma. So mm -hmm. we did not lay the book out that way. We okay. laid the book out more in kind of a chronological order in terms of how you're going to respond, because we felt yeah. like that would be the best way to do yeah. it. But I do think if you don't have eyes for trauma, you're guaranteed to miss this topic. Mm. Um, you know, you're guaranteed to not care well for the victim, and to honestly probably even add uh, or give not really great advice to the abuser. Right? If you don't have um, good, good eyes for trauma and what it looks like, so it's actually great that this is that your listeners are hearing what we talked about and what we said about trauma um, before we're having this conversation. You know, there's so many questions I want to ask about this specifically, <laughs> but uh, I have two that I want to ask. Okay. The first, though, is 
Um, help catch us up a little bit, because I think everybody could probably, at this point, has an idea of the problem of abuse, whether yeah. that's um, sexual abuse that exists within the church or whether that's right. abuse, you know, abusive relationships one to another within the church. Yeah. Part of that is because of, in the recent years, I think Me Too and then the Church Too movement, and there's been a lot in the news about this. And people, it's there's some heated debates that happen within yeah. this, and I'm less interested in the culture war and more interested, I think, right. along with you, Greg, on what does it mean to care what? for people? Yeah. So maybe help us just historicize this a little bit. Did the church miss something? Thing, um, in terms of specifically mm. domestic abuse, was was our lenses for that clouded um, in, in terms of recognizing that it's going on in our churches? And where do you think we are today? Yeah, that's helpful. Uh, I think I think the way I want to start answering that question is to to talk about kind of what abuse, what what we say in the book right. abuse actually is, right. right? Because I think that's where historically the church has kind of missed this, right? So we tend to think that abuse is either, in the church, historically, we have tended to either see it as a criminal kind of an issue or as a marital issue, Mm. right? So we have tended to see it as, so a lot of times when they hear the word perpetrator or they hear the word abuser, they hear the word abuse, they immediately, and it's understandable why, immediately go to uh, thinking about criminal implications, right? They think about, we, we, I shouldn't say they, we, I think we all do this as a culture. We think about it as um, physical abuse primarily. We think about it as sexual abuse, and we think about it as something that someone's going to get in trouble with the law on, right? Um, and actually, that's really not true, because when you, when you flesh out the other categories of abuse, verbal abuse and emotional abuse, you know, we were talking about trauma, and we said it's this kind of complex trauma because a lot of times the abusive behaviors, the actual behaviors that get isolated as abusive behaviors, um, they they happen. They're they're fairly low level, you know. But they happen. One of the one of the key distinctions of abuse is the way we talk about it in the book, as opposed to just some isolated abusive behaviors, is that there's a pattern to them, right? And so sometimes in the church, when I'm talking about this, and especially if I'm talking about those categories that it's really hard to kind of uh, flesh out, so emotional abuse, uh, verbal abuse, gaslighting, those kinds of things, psychological abuse, it's like... um, I will hear pastors and elders say, but Greg, I've done that. Mm-hmm. Like that, that behavior that you're talking about, being critical of my wife or um, belittling her maybe in, in the midst of a fight or whatever, I've done that. So does that mean that I'm abusive? And then does that mean that everybody's abusive? And the answer to that question is no, right? Uh, you see abusive behavior, the kind of abusive behavior that we're intending the, the book to help the church address as patterned behavior that happens, unrepentant pattern behavior that happens over a long period of time, right? Um, So where there is a a pattern of verbally belittling the wife without uh, the typical remorse and sorrow and sadness that would, and hate, honestly, for for one's own behavior that would accompany that uh, when someone who, who is not abusive does that, right? So that's what we're, that's the kind of thing that we're really talking about. So so one is to see this as like some crazy, like criminal thing that, you know, that, that people do. And then the other side of it, which again, you can see how these may kind of dovetail a little bit, is to see it as marital conflict. So to see it as a marriage problem or a relationship problem if the two people aren't married, right? But to see it as a, a more of a relationship, a couple problem or a marriage problem instead of um, seeing it as as abuse. And those are the ways that the church has historically gotten it wrong. So, mm-hmm. you know, what we do is we send this couple, they're having fights all the time. They even think, you know, well, we need marriage counseling, right? right. Um, and somebody has to be able to, to have eyes for what I'm seeing, this pattern of abusive behaviors that I'm seeing tells me that this is in a different category than normal marital conflict. And therefore, I don't actually think that you need marriage counseling. And what ends up happening is that someone who is abusive in marriage counseling 
will simply hijack the marriage counseling and try to triangulate the marriage counselor onto their side, right? Mm. So since their story is going to be, I'm not doing anything wrong, it's actually her problem. She's got the problem, Mm. right? So then in that situation, they're going to hijack marital counseling or marriage counseling groups within the church. That's the other place is sometimes they don't go to counseling, but they go to a marriage reconciliation group in the church or something. It's the same thing, right? Right. Um, And so... You have to be careful of that dynamic. Even counselors, by the way. So this is not just the church. We're not ragging on the church here. We're trying to say this is something that a lot of people don't have eyes for. So I have seen counselors. I've seen psychiatrists that I've referred people to get this wrong and say, you know, yeah, what you've been, what you're describing is. I mean, I've done that too. Surely this counselor that you're going to doesn't think that I'm an abuser as well, right? You know. And again, without the whole story. That's the kind of thing that can very easily happen. And so um, so it's not a marriage problem, and it's not a criminal problem. It's a different kind of problem. And I think that's the, that's the way historically we've gotten it wrong. Did I answer your question? No, I think in some ways, yeah. And I, I, I just want to say, like, um, so the church has gotten it wrong. You mentioned three things that I think are really helpful, three things that I'm keying in on now. Unrepentant, meaning there doesn't seem to be a lot of self-awareness. That's right. Or even self-awareness is one way of putting it, but even a lot of uh, care about the behavior, meaning like I'm not (laughs) bothered by it, right? It's somebody else's fault. So unrepentant, it's patterned, and it's over a long period of time. I, You know, that one you probably need to be careful with, but still there's something, there's some time period that it's happening. There is a pattern of behavior, and it's unrepentant. I think those three categories are really helpful. But... Given what you just said, let me ask this. Is it hard to recognize? Absolutely. It is hard to recognize. And that's where, like, if if we're talking about, okay, so what can we do in that situation? One is get some resources. We we hope mm-hmm. that When Home Hurts will be a resource, but there are others out there as sure. well. Get some resources that will help you to identify, you know, the kinds of things. There's a, another great book. Darby Strickland wrote a great book called Is It Abuse? That's great. Uh, which really is going to like, on that particular question that you're asking, is just going to help flesh some of that stuff out. So pastors can get that book as well. Um, and ultimately, like, get professional help. Like, get professional eyes on this. If you don't know what you're talking about, you can... Um, um, there are a number of counselors like myself who would consult with the church, you know, and try to help you ha- just have some other eyes on it, uh, but but get some eyes on it that are familiar with seeing the dynamics of abuse, because um, there is a dynamic that is happening that if you're not aware of, again, you'll fall into one of those two categories of saying, well, you know, it can't really be abuse because this person's not a criminal, you know, or it can't be abuse because it's happening in the context of marriage, and she's probably doing her part as well, you know, to, to kind of uh, bring the abuse mm-hmm. out, right? Um, and so it's important to understand that that's not what we're... When we're talking about abuse, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something that is uh, being perpetrated clearly by one person on another person, and it's a power... There's a power imbalance to abuse, whether you're talking about child abuse or whether you're talking about spousal abuse, there's always this kind of power dynamic where one person is using their influence to diminish the influence uh, of another person, right? To diminish another person. Um, and, um, and so that's the dynamic that you're looking for is, you know, how is, for example, in a Christian home, how is a man maybe misusing texts like Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3 um, and texts like that that talk about submission. Like, how is he misusing that to get what he wants? I have a personal definition that I use uh, clinically. It's not the definition that we use in the book. We use the the idea of influence in the book, mostly because we wanted, we knew we were appealing to um, uh, a broader audience of the church, and we wanted to help them see that. But I use a personal definition, especially when I'm working with clients, that's the desecration of the image of God hmm. in both people, really, in the abuser and the perpetrator, through patterns of intentionally misusing power, covertly or overtly, in words or actions, to gratify self. And so what I want, what I would want your listeners to hear is if they're trying to like get a handle on specifically 
every word of that definition, um, desecration of the image of God in both parties, um, through patterns of intentionally misusing power. So again, I think that it's always intentional. You may not be aware of the intentions of your heart. We know scripturally that we're not always aware of the intentions of our heart, right? Jeremiah 17, 9 says the, the heart is desperately wicked, deceitful. Who can know it, right? So, um, so you may not be aware of the intentions. Adam, you mentioned the lack of awareness. That is always present right. in these cases. Um, but there is some intentionality about the behavior. It is to... It is precisely to elevate the abuser and to diminish the victim, right, um, in such a way that the abuser ends up winning, getting what they want, you know, whatever whatever that may be. This is such—I'm so thankful you wrote this book, Greg, because I, I feel burdened in the Church around this. One, you, you said it. It's hard. It's complex. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, um, oftentimes— recognizing it is really complex because yeah. you have different narratives coming at you. And uh, so think about it. A husband walks in, you may meet with him separately and offers his side of events. A wife walks in, offers her side of events. You're trying to figure out what's going on. And then all of that's happening locally. But what's happened recently, I just want to name it a little bit, is this has become a totalizing conversation in the public square as well. Yes. Not just now we're talking about specifically domestic abuse, but terms like abuse, yeah, and oppression, yeah. And all these are power. Right. These are conversations that are happening in the world. Right. And they're happening in a very specific way. Yeah, um, yeah culturally it goes to privilege. Exactly. And, you you ha- know, all exactly. those kinds of things. Yeah. You have a reaction a lot of times that can happen. So I mean, let, let's just I, I remember when the term narcissist was a fairly technical term. Mm-hmm. Narcissistic personality disorder is, t- let's be honest, in the, in the literature is still rare. Rare yes. is a term. Yes, when I absolutely. say rare, it happens. I'm just saying it's not like everywhere you look. That's right. But now you can go, everyone's a narcissist now. Mm-hmm. I mean, every article I read, you're a narcissist. Yeah. You're a narcissist if you've ever trolled somebody. The reason you yell at somebody in a car is you're a narcissist. That's right. Th- these terms... Yes. Are used. I think people, to your point, Greg, people are going. Wait a minute. Is everybody? What if everybody's a narcissist? Nobody's a narcissist. Exactly. Everybody's abuser. Nobody's an abuser. My point, and if you are in an abusive relationship, I'm not talking to you. I'm trying to talk to the caregivers right now. We're trying to kind of sift through. We have this cultural conversation. Then you have the local conversation. I think what's really important if you're going to care for people, you need to put away the culture war conversation, yes. yeah. and you need to care for the person yeah. in front of you. That's right. And so often it's so much easier to have the cultural conversation. And I am less and less... This this is called Culture Matters, this <laughs> podcast. What I'm trying to say, though, is I'm less and less interested in having a conversation of this much importance in the dry right. cultural spaces and more saying... As a church, we want to be people who respond to those who are in this situation. Absolutely. And we want to respond well. Let me, let me, to that point though, Greg, let me ask this conversation. It's what I'm interested in. It's a hard one though. Mm-hmm. How does the church, how does your book have this conversation different than the way the world is having mm. this conversation? Yeah. yeah. That's really, that's really good and very important, Adam, in terms of how we talk about that. So, um, of course, first of all, I think we want to, we want to remember, that the bottom line is we're not trying to make anyone be a monster in this situation, right? So um, both people, that's why I ground it. That's why in the book we also ground it in the image of God, right? It's really good. So at the end of the day, both people in this relationship are image bearers, right? So you're not going to hear that in the world, right? Like in the Me Too conversation, you're not going to be hearing conversation about, you know, Harvey you know, Weinstein, you know, being an image bearer of God, but he is, right? At the end of the day, I mean, however awful that may sound to someone to hear that, everybody is an image bearer of God. And if you're a believer, a child of God, right? And so I think grounding the conversation in the fact that we're talking about where this is spiritually, how this impacts the church, is that one image bearer of God is not acting like God 
towards another image bearer of God, right? And so I think that's the place that you have to start, right? And so then, and and all of these things, we talked when we were talking about trauma, about how these things exist on a spectrum. Right. Everything here exists on a spectrum right. as well. Abuse exists on a spectrum. Narcissism exists on a right. spectrum. So all of these things, it's like, you, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I, I mean, I, I think that I mean, I certainly pick up on narcissistic qualities in myself from time to time, right? Am I, am I alone in that, right? No. And so, yeah, so I mean, uh, to a certain extent, the only perfect individual that ever lived, right? The only completely un-narcissistic person who ever lived was Jesus, right? Right. So, I mean, we have we have a model in the church and it's not any particular person, and it's not any particular type of psychopathology or definition of psychopathology. It is Jesus, right? Right. And so to to compare ourselves to Jesus, we may look extremely narcissistic, right? <laughs> um, and so, and extremely self-centered. Uh, at, the, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is we're trying to have words for a dynamic mm-hmm. that is, as I said, it's not a marriage problem, and it's not a criminal problem, and it's not also, it's not just an anger problem. So sometimes it gets described that way, right? You know, I just have an anger problem or whatever. The reason that we know that you maybe don't just have an anger problem is if we went and talked to like people that you work with, you know, or other people outside of the relationship where the abuse is occurring, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if if the people at work would generally describe you as angry, right, then maybe you do have an angry pro- anger sure. problem, right? Yeah. But if the people that you work with, and this is, by the way, this is the dynamic that we see in abuse, and mm-hmm. this is where also in the church it can really be missed, is, you know, someone comes up and says, hey, you know, Adam's wife is saying that I'm. I'm not trying to implicate sure. my brother You're great. here. You're great. Uh, Adam's wife is saying, you know, that some things that are really concerning in in their marriage. And then everybody who knows Adam is like, Adam is so nice. Adam is so calm. He doesn't yeah. have an anger problem. You know, it can't be. It it can't be. That can't be true. You know, I know Adam. And all of a sudden, the interesting dynamic is that the people at the church who know Adam in his church life, right, um, are saying that the the person who lives with him that they know him better than she does right right, right? which right. is really and so again that's one of the places where the church mm. misses it i hear that all the time in my practice and in my work with the church is surely i'm like like greg i've known this person for 20 years i've known this person for 25 years have you lived with them for 25 years right no. yeah. right right you know because that's a different dynamic yeah the ways in which the church has not stepped up to the plate like we should have, um, is yeah. that we don't believe people's stories. That's right, absolutely. And we dismiss their truth um, That's right. and say, hey, I'm like you said, I've known this person for 20 years. There's no way they can be this. You are some maybe making it up, or like you said, it's a marriage problem, or maybe y'all just need to work harder. Yes, right. And it sounds like your book is helping pastors and church leaders see clearer and listen better yeah. and recognize our job isn't to validate the truth of what someone's saying, but how do we help them navigate the situation that they're coming to us with? That's right. So, and I'm glad that you brought that up, Elizabeth, because that's one of the first things that we say. We talk about we talk about a process for engaging abuse in the church, and and we actually lay that lay that out as um, caring for victims, and we put that primary and first, and then correcting perpetrators, and then dealing with the marriage, right? So we're going to, when when we determine that what's going on in this relationship is a as an abuse dynamic, we're going to put marriage to the side. And that actually is not because we have a low view of marriage, it's actually because we have a very high view of marriage, right? And so because we value marriage as highly as we do, we know that we do not want to talk about a problem that's not a marriage problem as if it is and only make things worse. Rather, we want to address the heart of an abusive person before God. So before the marriage needs to be reconciled, uh, this person needs to be reconciled to God. Uh, there are clearly some things that are going on in their lives that um, that need to be dealt with first and foremost before the Lord, that they need to see those things and own those things and hate those things and make changes in those things before the marriage can be dealt with. And so, but when we're talking, but that's that's getting down to perpetrators, right? First, we're going to 
uh, engage the victim. And typically that happens because the victim engages us on some level, right? Right. Like she ends up saying, hey, there's some things going on that are happening in my marriage or maybe in a home group someone sees, you know, I I saw a dynamic between you guys Mm -hmm. that I wasn't really um, crazy about. It seemed like there's something more going on there. And so maybe there's a conversation. And out of that conversation, um, we begin to see, okay, this dynamic is what may be going on. And at that point, you're right. We're going to believe that person. We're going to take that story seriously. That does not mean that we are adjudicating that, that this is what this is. It just means that for sure, as I was saying, we're certainly going to listen to the person who lives with this person and knows them best rather than trying to make our own. I mean, I'll tell you guys right now. So my wife is Christy and my daughter is Sarah. And if either one of them tell tell you something about me that is not your experience of me, believe them, right? Because mm. they live with me, right? Right. And so, I mean, you know, so in that situation, I would say the same thing. I would say, believe, listen to the people yeah. who know this person the best. What do we always hear when, you know, if there's like a shooting or something like that, um, you know, and you'll talk to, there'll be an interview with the neighbors and they'll say, he was such a nice guy. He mowed my lawn when I was sick, yeah. you know? And so again, we just, we don't know what we don't know. Yep. And let's don't pretend that we do. It's interesting to me that this happens in other situations, but it seems to happen a lot in this situation. Maybe it's the seriousness. Maybe it's that we feel implicated ourselves somehow. Maybe we're just trying to make ourselves feel better. But I think if I went to somebody and said, hey, I am really freaking out right now. And their first response was just to be like, no, you're not. (laughs) I would be like, how is that helpful? Right. Right? Right. And if you think about it that way, so I'm talking in terms of my anxiety or something like that. Sure. Yeah. Oftentimes people don't know how to respond to anxiety. And I understand that. I'm not, you know, I don't try to foist that on somebody like, you know, I don't wag my finger at them if they don't say the perfect thing. But I've almost never had anybody say, no, you're not. You know, I feel this is happening or this happened. No, it didn't. No, you're not. And I, so I think in the same sense, it's not that you never get around to truth. It's not that you never get around to engaging somebody's story because we're all trying to bring our stories underneath and integrated into God's story. So we're at some time, we're always going to be helping point to the greater narrative going on. But in order to do that, you actually have to know the story that's happening in front of you, right? right. Yeah. Yeah. And and part of the reason we don't listen is because we don't value people's voice. That's good. And so there are certain people that we think, oh, this person always tells the truth. Because I think to talk about domestic abuse, and we don't have time to have a full conversation about the power dynamics within that is that a lot of times within the church, voices of women in particular are not seen to be as influential as the voices of men. Right. And oftentimes the person that a woman might take her issues to is uh, a man who's a pastor. That's right. And so thinking about the reasons why we have difficulty in believing people, one is just like, hey, I don't, I can't perceive this ever happening. But then us acknowledging that are there people within our communities that we are prone to choose over another group of people for reasons that lead back to to sin and not in a way that we're trying to really uplift image bearers like you've talked about, Greg. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I think... um, one thing I would say on on that too is um, how important it is to bring awareness to this topic because I do I think there are times where we're not valuing voices and I think there are also times where we don't know that we're doing that. In other words, when there used to be, I think this would probably be I think it's getting more prevalent, mm-hmm. but no one back in the day in seminary taught you how That's to deal right. with this. That's no. right. And so um the same way you might say, uh, you know, if you lived in peacetime for a long time and then all these people come back with post-traumatic stress, there might not be a lot of awareness mm-hmm. of how to deal with that. Right. And so what I don't what I want to be careful of is looking and saying to there's been misses within the church. I'm not trying to apologize for that. Right. But I do think telling the story accurately to say, man, it's okay. Let me normalize it a little bit. If somebody comes into your office and says something or into your home group or into whatever and says something that you don't understand, it's okay to just sit in the discomfort of that. Yes. And I think too often it was probably like, 
well, what do I know? I know marriage problems. I know spiritual issues right. as a pastor. I'm saying right. as a pastor in yeah. the church. And so probably you just worked with the categories that you were familiar exactly. with. Do you know right. what I mean? Absolutely. And that part of what we're discovering is those categories, to your point, are actually not sufficient to deal with the problems that are in front of us because it's not a marriage problem. Or That's not, right. right. That's right. right. And it's yeah. also helpful, I would say, for churches to realize that, and again, um, this is... Uh, something that I'm not knocking this, but I am saying a lot of times in our leadership structures within the church, um, there is a um, a far greater um, preponderance of male leadership, right? Um, And so having female voices Mm -hmm. speak into that is, you know, is I think really, really helpful and really important because... Sometimes women can see things in those power dynamics that we're talking about that men just can't see because they're the ones who have the power, mm-hmm. right? And so again, like I said, that's a cultural issue that we could talk about a lot, but it's the yeah. same. It's the very same type of dynamic culturally that gets talked about when people of color are saying to exactly. a largely white, you know, um, uh, administration mm-hmm. or whatever, uh, you guys don't know what we're talking. You know, you don't know what we're talking yeah. about because you don't have eyes for our lived yeah. experience, right? Yeah. And so, so having people uh, who do have eyes for that lived experience involved in the process is really important. One last piece, because I think it's really important that both of you have hinted at. I think um, as we've talked. Oftentimes when somebody first comes to you, sometimes they're coming and they're saying, I'm in an abusive situation. Most times they're, it's, you have to help them discover it. And so I think that's important. That's another reason to have women in these spaces, because what we have found is that women who talk to other women, there's a way that they, many women intuitively have come to know how to ask questions about the relationship, yeah. right? And men can do it too. I'm not saying they can't, but my point is just to say, um, oftentimes you are helping that person. to. Sc- they may come in and say, my husband said this, and no one's ever before said, how many times has he said that to yeah. you, yes. right? Like it, right. Uh, uncovering the pattern, that's uncovering right. the unrepentance, uncovering right. the period of time. Yes. It's, right, Greg, yes. wouldn't you say that's often? Absolutely. You're looking for those patterns, uh, so you're looking to ask those questions. What was the last time? What was the first time? What was the most recent time? What's a typical time? Like those are questions that are great. And when anyone has talked about, you know, uh, a, a behavior that we would consider abusive, right? Okay, when was the last time? Oh, I mean, gosh, it's been, you know, 20 years. Okay, well, yeah, that's one answer, right? What was the last time? Yesterday, you know, yeah. what was the time before that? The day before yesterday, yeah. right? you know. Yeah. Now you know. Okay, there, there's, there's, we're seeing a pattern, right? Right. And so, so it's important to be able to flesh those kinds of things out. So, as we think about just mental health in the church overall, um, you know, we think about it historically, and we we did this with the domestic abuse conversation we just had. We kind of took it back to say, what are some of the historical ways that yeah. we have dealt with this conversation, Greg? In your experience. What are some of the historical ways that the church has dealt with mental health, and yeah. how have you seen that change over the years? Yeah, that's good. So early on, like, you know, if we want to go back to um, mid-century of the 20th century or whatever, um, as mental health is really developing in the culture as a category, I think that the church actually responded to it. I would say I think that the church responded to it fairly well. They sort of stayed in their lane. Uh, they said, our job is to be the church. Our job is to care for people spiritually. This is something different, right? Mental health is like, for the same reason that as a pastor, Adam, you know, as a minister, Elizabeth, you know, someone comes to your office at the church, and you're not going to say, and and they tell you, you know, I'm having kind of a backache, you know, or whatever. It's like, you, you know, you're not going to like, well, let me see if I can do an adjustment here for you, you know? I mean, you're just not going to go into yeah, that nah, space, sure. right? You don't want that for me. Uh, right. <laughs> um, you know, or, you know, my heart is is palpitating, you know, or whatever. It's like, go to the doctor, you know? That doesn't sound like uh, something that I can help you with, right? And so that was done a lot uh, during that time. I mean, there are other things that are going on. There are physiological things that are going on. And so I think where we have historically gotten it wrong is to assume that it is in the pastoral lane to try to care for those things. Now, 
let me be clear because again, I would in in certain circles, particularly, I would definitely identify myself as a counselor who practices biblically, uh, a licensed counselor who practices biblically. Does the does the Bible talk about depression? Does the Bible talk about anxiety? Does the Bible talk about trauma, like mm-hmm. we talked about in the last episode? Yes, it does. Uh, so, does the Bible address those things? And is there helpful information that we can glean from the Bible? Sure. Just like there is about some certain physical problems that we might be able to glean some information from the Bible. But the Bible does not intend to be um, a resource for those things. The Bible intends itself to be a book about God and the gospel and how the, the gospel and God change us to become more like him. Right? Like the, that's, it's, it's the story of God and the gospel and how we as people, as God's people, interact with that. That's what the Bible is, right? And so... I think the place where the church has missed it um, is in um, but trying to address more than that mm. within the church. Uh, and I think we got our, you know, I'm I'm a leader in our church as well. Like we've got our hands full just addressing that, right? So I mean, I think like we stay in our lane and we do classes and and curriculum and things that help people understand God better and understand the God the gospel better and understand themselves better. Praise the Lord. Like, that's what we should be doing as the church, right? Can we venture into some of those other things with recovery programs and so forth? Of course we can do that, and we should do that. We, we want to try to help people holistically in every way that we can. But should we see ourselves as experts in areas that we're not experts mm-hmm. in? No, we should not, right? And I think that's where, where we've gotten this conversation wrong a lot of times is in trying to be in the wrong lane. Do you think some of it depends too on your definition of mental health? Because I think if you, um, I think there's a healthy debate that goes on around this. Because I actually certainly agree if what we mean by mental health is the pathologies of the mind, right? Meaning the diseases of the mind. Okay, depression is you experience these, you know, seven of these nine symptoms over two weeks, da-da-da-da-da-da. Right, right, right. Right. But I think there is something to say that, two things, I think the Bible actually does speak to human suffering. Of course. In very robust ways. Yes. Is mental health a part of human suffering? Yes. Does it get into the specifics of how to do cognitive behavioral therapy? Well, no. But I think there's an interesting turn that's happened with some Christian practitioners, some Christian psychologists, I want to say, probably not counselors, but in the psychological world, that is more interested in the conversation of um, flourishing and describing mental health more in the sort of virtue ethics kind of way to talk about, um, and, and many psychologists are talking about this. So what's the, in other words, if you say the place of psychology, psychology is treating you know, this is a, by the way, I'm just making this up. <laughs> psychology, <laughs> this is great. psychology is the, you know, technical scientific practice of treating psychopathologies, treating diseases of the mind. Well, right. sure, sure. I think why the lines get blurred is the Bible does talk about human right. suffering. The Bible Absolutely. does speak to what does it mean to flourish. And if all we if I walk out of a counseling room and I no, and I no longer have depression, am I flourishing? Well, I might be on the road to it. I might not be. Right? That's right. And so I think I, I just want to. The only nuance I'm going to make to what Greg just said is, if what we mean by mental health is something a little more total, that would say, does God care about? your heart, which Keller defines as the seat of your mind, your will, or your loves, and your emotions. Well, yes. And what I would tell you is, I think the church stepping out of the lane of emotions has actually been a huge mistake. And I've seen that over the past year. The way I describe it is we have a church full of people who uh, say they love Jesus and they're still huge jerks. They have no idea how to be resilient in the face of suffering and hard things. And if all our only answer to them is, well, you need to go to the counseling right. room, where we are, we are probably doing something wrong. I, I believe we are doing something wrong. I think the church does have something to say about this is how sure. we do mad, this is how we do glad, this is how we do sad, and this is how we do afraid. We have language for that. Absolutely. The Bible has. But 
there are limits to how far that goes. That's right. Specifically when we're talking about pathologies. That's right. Yeah. Is anything I said pushback? Absolutely. I, yeah, okay. Absolutely. Yeah. 100% everything that you said. Of course, the church gets to speak into, you know, the the emotional life. You know, psychology, I mean, the, the origin of the term is it's the study of the psyche, mm-hmm. right? Which is the soul, right? That's the Greek word for soul, right? Right. So... I mean, it it is absolutely something that the church has um, a a right to claim some uh, territory in. I think the problem I was trying to highlight right. is when the church gets into areas that are psychopathology. Right. So, for example, saying things like, you know, so addressing someone's depression by saying, "Well, you know, I was." Um, I, I was feeling the same way you're feeling, and I, you know, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I read this passage or whatever, meditated mm-hmm. on this scripture or whatever, and now I don't have that anymore, you know, or whatever, like that kind of thing. Uh, or even I was feeling the way you were feeling, and I went to, uh, you know, a counselor or a psychologist or a psychiatrist, and I got a diagnosis for bipolar disorder, so you probably have bipolar disorder, right? right. So, like, just trying to yeah. sort of be the WebMD kind of, of the people <laughs> in our home group, right? So, you know, it's like... In, in Instead of saying stepping out and saying, "Hey, um, for sure, I can give. I know of passages in the Scripture that can give comfort to this situation. I know of passages in the Scripture that can minister to this situation you're walking through. Let's talk about those. Let me care for you in that way. Yes, for sure, that's the church's role. It's a home group's role. It's a pastor's role. Sure. Um, when we go into saying, "I think you have this," or "I think you don't have that," or "I can't believe that that counselor told you that you have this," or that "I can't believe that the counselor said you're in an abusive relationship," that's ridiculous, you know, or whatever. Like right. when the church begins to do that kind of yeah. thing, and what I'm saying is historically, the church stepped into that with Jay Adams and people like that right. in terms of a practical sense. But like it is. It's it's something that is relatively new, and I, I'm happy to say I really believe that there are a lot of people, a lot of churches, beginning to find that middle ground, that, right. that nuanced mm-hmm. middle ground that you're right. talking about, Adam. Right? Which is, yeah, we're not gonna like, we're not gonna completely step out of that, but our lane is to focus on um, people's spiritual lives and to help them. And of course. Does these um, psychological issues and emotional issues affect their spiritual lives? Does the abuse that they're going through affect their spiritual lives? 100%. Does COVID and all the things that we were talking about in the last episode related to the collective trauma that we've all been through affect people's spiritual lives? Yeah, that's, I think, the place where the church needs to focus. I think another side of the cube, you know, the person who feels you know, wrong for stepping into a counselor's room or, you know, hey, I need to be on medicine or whatever that might be. It's just us needing to help our people have a better theology of science um, and that God is present in those things too. And so I think, like you mentioned at the very beginning, a unique separation that we have for how we engage um, more of the the practice of, of dealing with mental health through professionals Versus I'm going to go to a dentist or yeah. I'm going to go get surgery, you know, or I'm go. And so helping our people understand that God is present in these things and he's not separate from That's them. Right. And he created us with the mind to be able to understand our bodies and to be able to use that knowledge to benefit um, the health of uh the body, whether it is just our physical body or the Christian community. Right. And sometimes I think that there's a disconnect where we have to help our people and steward them from the front that, God is present in this. He's not opposed to it. He's present in the cancer. He's Mm -hmm. present in the dental issues. He's present in the depression, you know, or the abuse or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so to to the role of the church is to demonstrate in a very real sense God's presence by being the people of God Mm -hmm. present in that situation as well, right? Whatever the situation is, addiction, you know, whatever. Um, And yet to, to refrain from, you know, talking about things that we don't. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Or trying definitely. to be, you know, we, we you talked about EMDR. It would be insane. I literally think it would be insane. I really mean that. If somebody walked in and I said, "Hey, I'm going to do some EMDR," and I right. just read about it, right? right? Like there that are, would be insane. Yeah, yes. yeah. In other words, I think to recognize that um, there are techniques 
and I'm using that in a technical definition. Yes, right, sure. And ex- and knowledge that is specific to this body of work that you don't have, right? And you can recognize that in terms of I'm not a doctor or I'm not a this or I'm not a that. And I think, um, you know, I I will say I want to be nuanced. Uh, psychology yeah, is a soft Me science. Too. It's not the right. same as That's a right. physicist or a right because the the mind. Mm-hmm. is a different and complex thing that's very difficult yes. but i i so my what's my point in bringing this up i'm totally with elizabeth and greg that we need to destigmatize and have a collaborative let's get to the the question and i want to ask greg this too as a local church what can we do right and i think to have a collaborative approach mm-hmm. with our mental health care professionals Absolutely. is only going to benefit our people and the church, right? right? Yeah, so know the community resources that are available yep. for anything that we're talking about. So, you know, in these two conversations, we've talked about abuse, we've talked about other mental health psychopathologies, we talked, you mentioned addictions, I know you've had a whole uh, episode with Snetzer on that, but like... You know, at the end of the day, it's like all of these things are things that um, the scriptures speak to, um, and that the church has a role in. But also knowing the the local resources, knowing the local rehab centers, knowing the local therapists, knowing the local psychiatrist, uh, knowing the local domestic abuse shelters and agencies, and so forth, and having a collaborative relationship with them. We are not at odds with each other in this, right? right? Um, and I think that's the as speaking as a counselor in the community, that's what I would say is I want to work with churches, um, and I do work with a lot of churches. And I want to be a resource to them. I want to be a help to them. Uh, the, the clients that I have that are members of those churches, they desperately need the community of God and the people of God in those situations. So, you know, having a relationship, asking for help when you need it, um, being well-resourced and saying, I've got an answer for you in that. You know, you're in an abusive situation, you need to get out. I know of some domestic abuse shelters. I know of some counselors that work with trauma. I know of some counselors that work with abuse in general. Um, and I can help you with some resources. Yes. As um, this is, a, I think this is really important for the local ch- church too. And Greg has done incredible work on this. I just, the importance of it, honestly, is overlooked often, but I, I think it's so important. And that is, as a local church, having a plan of care that defines the collaboration that's happening is so important. Yeah. And you helped the Village Church, and we use that here as well at Citizens. You helped us develop those plans and spans of care. Um, for those listeners who are are either pastors or working in the church, you're involved in your church, you are maybe a mental health care practitioner. Greg, um, maybe talk about what a plan of care might look like just robustly for a church, meaning you can define the spaces that people are playing, you can define when counselors step in. Is that is that a good way to kind of talk about plans of care? Yeah, I think it is. I, I think, you know, obviously every situation differs, right? Right. right because every situation is very highly individualized. But I think it is a matter of like knowing, you know, where um, uh, the church can be of help, where the church can provide uh, community and resources that are unique to her, right. to the church, um, and where the church needs resources that the church uh, currently lacks, right? I mean, some churches have counselors on staff, right. you know? Um, and so they can, you know, those people can operate within those um, within those realms. Um, and so, you know, it's, I, I think it's, I think it's pretty highly individualized, to be honest, but I sure. think it is the kind of situation where um, uh, you sh- there should be a collaboration between pastor, counselor, member, um, and whoever else is involved in setting the direction that's going to be best for that individual. Did I answer the question? Yeah, I think so. And I, the, the only thing I'd add is just to say, like, if you're a pastor out there and you pastor a small congregation, know that you can ask about mental health care, you know, counselors who may be in your congregation, right. and think about how yes. to have a collaborative relationship with them. Hey, I'm going to need your help when it comes to this abuse case that's happening in my church, or yeah. I'm going to need your help because this guy's talking about suicide and I don't know what to tell him. Those kind of things are really important. No, there's there's ways the body can help one another. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's great to ask for resources within the church 
Um, and those resources likely know resources outside the church, right? Yes. So in my church at the village, you know, if someone came to me and said, you know, hey, I know you're a counselor. Do you know of resources for this issue or that issue? I could help a ton, exactly. right? And I do. Um, and so that's that's what I would recommend that for sure as well. That's awesome. You know, I think the same thing can uh, kind of funnel down to just a member level because there's going to be somebody who shows up in your small group. There's going to be someone that you meet in a pew um, and that we just do the work of thinking of the resources before we need them. Mm. Um, we have talked about this throughout the entire series and that mental health is not something that is going away, um, but it's something that we are going to see through our doors for the next like surges of it because of what we've experienced. And so that we will be prepared and that there's responsibility for everyone within the body of Christ to help love um, well. And so we all can find a few resources Mm. to be able to help. And we've definitely have resources in the show notes here. Um, We've talked about a lot of things (laughs) through this series. Um, And so I always like being able to give a word for the person who is listening to this and is having a difficult time. And it's like, I don't know how to weed through all the things. Greg, if they were sitting in front of you Mm. and they are just like, man, something I can't continue with the way my life is working right now. I'm overwhelmed what's a good place for them to start? Yeah. Tell somebody, right? So whether that is, I mean, if you're in a home group, tell your home group leader. If you're, um, if you've got a care, um, minister on your staff, talk to that person or just your pastor. If it's a small staff church, you know, talk to your pastor, hopefully pastors, if you're listening, you have done the work before you need it of resourcing yourselves, right? Because you can't do everything. But I think that that's the first step. What I would tell people is tell somebody your pain matters to God, um, and so it matters to me, right? It matters to the person in the pew, matters to your home group leader, it matters to the person um, sitting next to you at church, it matters um, to your pastor because it matters to God. And so that's the first thing is I would say, tell somebody um, and be willing to get the help that you need. Gosh, man, that's powerful. Yeah. Um, that your pain matters to God Mm. and it should matter to the people that you're in community with and that we can share that message both in word and in presence um, to be a listening ear, to be people, again, who have the resources, but just to love fellow image bearers, to know that there is brokenness in this world, that suffering is real, and we together have an eternal hope that helps us walk with people through these seasons. Yeah. So thank you, Greg. It has been a joy to have you on again um, to help us end this series. Y'all, we love you. We care about you. And we talk about these things because these things are unique to our stories and the stories of the people in our congregations. And so we hope that this series was helpful for you. Um, God sees you. He knows you. And he is present with you. Amen. And that he wants to walk with you to a place of beauty. It might not be the same as it was before, but there can be something new and beautiful that comes and your God is present in that with you. Mm. Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. Today's episode was recorded and mixed by Chris Starrett and produced by David Roark. If you like what you heard, please give us a great review where you listen to the podcast. Also, follow us on Instagram. Thanks, and God bless.